The FinTech Podcast is sponsored by True North, the leader in driving FinTech forward. True North builds end-to-end platforms, web and mobile applications for companies within the FinTech industry. You can find True North at www.truenorth.co. Today's podcast is hosted by True North's co-founder and president, Brian Sampson. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the FinTech Podcast, sponsored by True North. We are lucky enough to have a FinTech veteran, uh, Alan Tien, on the line today. Alan, we are we are absolutely thrilled. I know our audience is pumped. Tell us a little more about um, uh, what you're doing today. Hey, Brian. Super excited to be here. Um, I am actually at Central Pacific Bank, a bank in Hawaii, as their digital strategy lead. But as you've mentioned, I've done a lot of fintech, so this is my first foray into the banking world. Very cool. Well, Alan, you know, your background is just so impressive. And, you know, we've we've had a lot of conversations with some really interesting entrepreneurs and, um, you know, fintech executives. And it's always interesting to see if, you know, they're born or they're made. And, you know, I, I just love to go back in time. If you don't mind, um, go all the way back to your childhood. You know, where where did you grow up? I grew up in Connecticut, of all places. My dad worked at Pfizer, so. Now, was that? Um, I think they had some locations in like New London and Groton. Was was that around there? Yeah. Wow. Very good. That's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right on. And um, so, uh, so your dad worked for Pfizer. Um, do you think that had any impact into your your career down the road? I don't think so. Um... The biggest thing was we got a computer pretty early on, and you know, because we go back to Taiwan and they had uh, copy IBMs. I just liked programming. Um, I wasn't great at it, but I enjoyed it. So um, I think that got me into technology. I was interested in it. But to be honest, I think the real projection that changed my career or trajectory that changed it was uh, getting to Stanford, and it kind of really moved me out of my little small town East Coast and moved me to California, and it just happened to be right before Silicon Valley just really exploded on the internet. So you're talking like this is early to mid-90s that you're... Yeah, I graduated in 91, was still doing Anderson Consulting when it was still called Anderson Consulting back then. (laughs) So, you know, systems integration, large consulting um, projects. Uh, Just for college, I did double E, electrical engineering, so that gave a good technical foundation, but I, I knew I didn't want to do hardware um, so I, I went into the systems integration consulting world, and you know that that was great to learn how large uh, systems were built, you know how professional people did quality assurance. But man, we were doing COBOL and Fortran. I mean, that was super boring stuff. <laughs> so the middle in mid '95, I switched to more Visual Basic and stuff like that. So just kind of getting down to the PC out of AS400 into the PC world trying out relational databases. And that just kind of moved up the, the chain from technical stuff to more strategic into you know, process engineering consulting and, and systems consulting. Right on, right on. So you got into the financial services world you know, a, a long time ago as well. Um, and I, I say a long time in a flattering way. You know, you've <laughs> really been a, uh, you know, a mentor and um, you know, key contributor for quite a while. So, you know, I think um, if I had it right, you started, was it PayPal first and you were in Asia? Did I get that right? Um, I started in PayPal in 2002, bottom of the internet bubble, 
horrible time to get a job, by the way. Um, so I was very, very fortunate to get into PayPal. Uh, they were literally a month later acquired by eBay. So I, I knew it was coming. But early days, I mean, this is when, so for anyone's interested, Elon Musk was gone already, but Peter Thiel, David Sachs, a lot of those original bigwigs were still there um, just before they left. And we were under 10 million, because I remember joining the first 10 million user party, and now they're crossing 250 million users. Wow, yeah. Yeah, and, and you were, were you working in the, um, the location in the Bay Area then? Yeah, we were still on Castro Street in Mountain View, so that's before we moved to the kind of the corporate offices. And I was a product manager for this new group. We called it Off eBay because we didn't know that the industry called it Merchant Services at the time. Interesting. And tell us, how did you get to China? You were you played a really key role for PayPal in China. Maybe you can walk us through how you got there. Yeah. Um, so I was doing product management. I just launched our first set of APIs. At PayPal, I was really proud of that. I was going to fly to Florida and, and do the eBay Live, which was their 10,000 eBay sellers to tell them about this new product. And I got called into the secret meeting, and they're like, uh, we're going to China. You know, eBay had bought EachNet um, at the time, and PayPal was to follow. So I was put on this project as the head product manager, and, you know, craziness ensued for the next year, uh, resulting ultimately in the launch of our product in China, uh, so domestic PayPal for in 2005. And um, near the end of that time, they actually came through with the expat offer to move me out there. So I got exiled to China for my bad behavior. <laughs> um, and I mean, I thought launching the product was insane because it was, you know, we had, we had 20 product managers, 40 engineers and QA literally the largest project PayPal had ever done. I, we translated a million words into Chinese. We did the database conversion to UTF-8, which was super risky at the same time, so we could do double byte. So, mm -hmm. But that paled in comparison to the much larger challenge that when we faced on the ground in China is that eBay ended up losing the market to Taobao, which is right. owned by Alibaba. I, you know, I basically was the tail on the dog, right? The PayPal was supporting eBay and when our marketplace lost, you know, we were lost. So that was a crazy first two year entry into China. Yeah. And, and maybe you can talk about, I mean, it sounds like it was pretty intense. Um, I mean, this is a huge undertaking, you know, and, and how, you know, with a lot of, a lot of our listeners are, uh, you know, CEOs, which, you know, in any cases when you're the, the product manager, you know, you're, you're the mini CEO how you set the vision and got everybody around, you know, the same mission with, you know, so much going on. Yeah, you know, a lot of people say that, but reality, most product managers are what, like 30? I mean, there's no way you have the experience to know what's going on. I would, I would say I was a glorified project manager, like making sure all the different um, requirements were somehow rationalized. So compliance would say this, and legal would say this, and tax would say that, and you know the business unit would say this. I mean, it was it was crazy. So trying to find that common ground, and of course, the engineers say we can't do any of this. <laughs> so you know, <laughs> getting a a product out the door is. I always thought it was like the uh, circus ringleader in, in the three ring circus. You're just trying to just get everyone to agree. Never mind what the 
overall strategy should be. So, yeah, and maybe if you if you don't mind talking through some of the um, unforeseen issues of doing this in a different country and a country as complicated as China. Yeah, you know, a lot of people blame the government, and of course, there was an element of that. And if you read the Harvard Business Review about how eBay lost as a, as a case, it's it's interesting. I find it when business students write the reviews, they don't really get technology. I think many people miss this bigger thing in the technology world, especially in the SaaS world where things are run in 24/7, 365. Is that you're often dependent on the engine back home, and you know. Technically, we're in the cloud, but at the end of the day, there's a physical database and, and server sitting somewhere, and all the engineers and architects are there. So the internal uh, fight, where you know the China team is fighting for China, but the whole company is focusing on making revenues. And so, guess what? A one percent change in the United States is worth you know five years of revenues in China. Right, mm. so you're justifying any product you build, unless it's coming from the CEO, almost never gets prioritized on a global scale. So great when you launch the project, that's fine because everyone was focused on it. But what happens if there is a P1 bug for China? But in the scheme of things, how does that compare with a P2 bug in the U.S.? Because the P2 bug in the U.S. will, you know, solve a million bucks, whereas China, you're losing money still. Interesting. And and how long in in total were you were you out in China for? So I was there eight years.、Um, what ended up happening was we essentially lost the fight to Taobao. eBay did. They did a joint venture, just to kind of gracefully exit. PayPal was about to shut down, and、um, my boss and I kind of saw that PayPal had this cross-border revenue that was growing organically, just kind of sitting in the corner. So. Three million dollars of revenue that nobody was any paying any attention to, and what it was was the entrepreneurial Chinese merchants who found some products in you know a factory and then they sold it on eBay in the U.S. or the really really entrepreneurial ones had their own website and this was super early on, 2007, 2008. Nobody even knew what cross border meant. We convinced the management team, hey, don't fire all of us, keep our 10 business unit people and 20 customer service people, and we'll pivot to this cross border business. And I remember just thinking that you know one day maybe we could be as large as our Hong Kong business, which I think was like twenty million dollars a year at the time. This is revenue,、mm-hmm. and within a year we crossed that, and you know it just it just never looked back. It was twenty million, seventy million, one hundred thirty million, one hundred eighty million, two twenty five, and I left it at two forty five with a very very healthy take rate. So. This was just explosive growth,、uh, riding on the back of China's growth.、Um, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll segue a, a quick second. If if you think about it, in the United States in 1900 was when the U.S. kind of entered the global stage, right? Like、yeah. New York was starting to challenge London, right? And then the 1950s, the Nifty 50s, is the middle class in the United States came out, and you know everyone was buying their refrigerators and TVs and And whatever,、mm-hmm. right? The the white appliances, and then the 2000s was the internet, which unleashed this massive wave of productivity and innovation. Correct. So 50 year cycles of mega trends that really drove massive change in the economy in the United States. Think about all three of those massive trends happening 
at the same time in the year 2005 to 2015 in China. Yeah, it was a perfect storm. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think the very fascinating um, analysis or, or, or review of kind of the, the phoenix from the ashes, you know, finding an incredible business when we thought we had failed in China. And the only way we would have found that it was to make this massive risk to try to go into China, thinking we were going to go domestic, but finding this super awesome cross-border business. Now, to, to dig in that for a second, um, how much of that do you think was the strategy was right versus like right place, right time? Well, certainly the strategy was not right originally because nobody even knew about it. So it was going in domestic, completely failed on that. You know, turns out escrow was the payment product that China wanted. And if you think about it, any real uh, low trust uh, society. So, you know, where e-commerce is just starting to rise and payments is not solidified, people prefer escrow. So a lot of Latin America, you know, mm -hmm. Africa, that these are places where, you know, credit cards and consumer protection is not that strong. Escrow is the preferred payment method. So from a pure product strategy standpoint, we should have come up with escrow, but we didn't because we thought, oh, you know, we know better, right? This is what works in the United States. So this is what we'll bring over there. From a corporate strategy standpoint, they were correct in buying EachNet. It was the right company, but we lost in the execution there. And then when we went to cross-border, the real advantage here was we were under the radar. Everyone thought we lost in China. So for the first two years, our little scrappy team in China, we were like a startup. You know, we were funded by yeah. the big company, but they completely forgot about us. And so we got to, you know, really do a lot of things, no product, but a lot of uh, sales things. So in the end, for example, this is not um, technology, but I built out a 250-person uh, sales force in six cities uh, using third parties to, to hold the employment license, but, you know, they were controlled by us um, mm -hmm. to do direct sales, which is unheard of in a internet company because they're like, why would you possibly do internet, you know, direct sales when you can do marketing? They just assume that people know the brand. You know, in the United States, you could do marketing. People have heard of PayPal, but yeah. in China, they, they never heard of PayPal. They don't know what you are and why they should even do cross-border. Right. Now, um, just think about PayPal as, you know, really one of the first fintech companies. And I feel like it's got to be around 20 years now that, that PayPal's uh, been in business. What do you think has been maybe the secret sauce for PayPal? You know, why have they lasted and, and others haven't? So a lot of companies, you know, in their business plans say they have network model. Most of them are economies of scale instead of network model businesses. And it's easy to confuse them. So one of the really interesting things about PayPal, they're one of these magical business models of, of a network model. And let me just diverge for a second to um, explain that. A network model is where every person who joins the network adds value to the network. Every incremental person who goes on to Amazon to buy something kind of just lowers the cost for everybody else. But one buyer doesn't really help the other buyer. And I'll give an exception to that in a second. But whereas in a a classical marketplace like an eBay, every buyer who goes on to the, the network increases the value for the other buyers because sellers want to join it. And sellers want to join because all the buyers are there. And then vice versa, every seller that goes on adds more inventory to the whole system and thus more buyers want to go on. And so this is a positive network effect that causes the, the system to grow exponentially. 
Um, PayPal is obviously that way, same thing. And, and you can think about Visa and all these things. It's the same idea. So I, I would say the flywheel effect is key. How these network models launch is the greatest mystery of all. If you, know, if you can find it, great. But obviously, when I joined PayPal, there was 10 other payment providers that were all we were tracking that seemed to be you know, quite competitive. Um, they all slowly started falling by the wayside. So I think the business model is, has to be phenomenal. Uh, we were lucky that we came up with the idea of charging the merchants and the buyers were free because some models charge the other way around. We are basically on the side of the merchants. So we're, it's basically a pay for performance. Like we don't get paid if the merchants aren't making money. So they can cry about the rates all day and all night. But at the end of the day, they are choosing with their pocketbook to use the product. And then I think everyone's familiar with this concept of the PayPal mafia. Yeah. The hiring was incredible. Um, I, it was a little bit of magic, and they, they prefer to hire very much from friends. Uh, so the core team, a lot of the engineers, for example, came from University of Illinois Champaign, and they all went to the, similar, uh, the same magnet high school to begin with. So you know, once one guy came, they brought another guy, another guy. So a lot of people were comfortable working with each other, but their hiring criteria was, was amazingly difficult at the time. And they really hired for culture. So, you know, in my 25, 30 years of working, I would say that team that I worked with the first couple of years were, was literally the best team I've ever worked with in my life. Wow. Yeah. It looks like you moved back to the States and got in with Visa. Maybe tell us a little more about what brought you back to the States and, um, and, and what you were doing for Visa. Yeah, I actually moved to Singapore first. So um, oh, okay. PayPal moved me to Singapore to take on a global role. So basically teach all the other country managers what this cross-border thing was because it was 30% of all TPV, all transaction processing volume of PayPal, even higher of revenue. And if you took profitability, it was like 70% of profitability came from cross-border. And yet everyone was focused on domestic merchant services. So it was like, why, is, why are things so out of whack? Well, because you're your metrics are all out of whack. So um, mm -hmm. I did it for a year. You know, it was wonderful. I got to fly all around the world to London and Paris and Germany. And at the end of the day, if the KPIs are messed up, and this is a good warning message to everyone else, if the KPIs are not aligned with the actions you want people to take, they will do what's good for their pocketbook. They will do what's good for their bonus, even if it's not good for the company. I basically got tired of, you know, a great title and great pay, but I couldn't execute anything. I know it sounds crazy in retrospect, <laughs> but um, I, and I joined Visa in Singapore, which was their regional headquarters, and they had just opened their first innovation center in San Francisco, and they wanted to open one up in Asia and eventually in Europe and Dubai. So I was part of that startup team to launch our amazing innovation center that we launched there. You know, innovation can be um, sometimes ambiguous. You know, how did you um, how did you define the the goals or the objectives for that? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and a lot of other innovation centers, one, are super flashy. They look like the uh, cockpit of the enterprise. You know, in Star Trek, right? It's like it right, looks really yeah. awesome. It's it's all glowing, and but you don't really want to touch anything. And the model that we wanted to go for more was like James Bond's Q Lab, you know, where things are kind of <laughs> blowing up behind you and, and let me show you the coolest stuff going on. 
But our goal is to build with our clients. So a lot of innovation labs, they're trying to do mini VCs investing. And frankly, corporates suck at investing. They, they just really are not very good at it. Um, we basically eschewed that model and said, look, our goal is to do practical innovation. So one is how do we explain what services Visa offers in, in a consumable way? So we had APIs, just nobody knew about them, right? And we had partners at APIs and nobody knew about them. So my boss came up with this brilliant idea to make them into like cubes. So you think of them like Lego blocks and you can kind of put them together and say, oh, let me build a service. And then, you know, we changed the way people thought about working. So all the banks in the region in Asia and, and frankly, most of the world was still doing the waterfall development approach. So we had to train our clients about these ideas, how to build modular services, how to use APIs, how do you do it in like four week sprints so that we can get something out really fast, test it. And it was mind blowing to our customers. And, and that's what we meant by innovation. So I, I incorrectly jumped in and uh, I forgot about the Singapore experience. Um, take us, take us all the way through your, um, your jump back to the mainland. Yeah, that was actually a personal uh, reason. My son was entering high school and my wife said, hey, are, are we going to be in Singapore for four more years? And working at a multinational, I couldn't guarantee that. So uh, we started looking to move uh, back to the States. And crazily enough, my son got into Punahou, which is a private school here in Hawaii. Um, and so, you know, I fast-tracked my retirement plan by about 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, for full disclosure for audience, you know, Alan and I met here in Hawaii as well. And, you know, you've been really active in the startup community, you know, blue startups and, and mentoring and advising. And then, you know, it was only recently that you, you found this match with, uh, with the bank. Uh, maybe you could tell us more about, you know, what, what your goals and objectives are and, and also um, maybe how do you take all this like really innovative, you know, uh, front running, uh, exciting experiences that you've had and connect uh, with like an older established institution? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm going to first back up to um, how I even landed this role. To, to your point, I was really trying to get out into the community as, and as Brian knows, uh, Hawaii is perhaps not known for being the latest cutting edge on technology. You know, we're great for tourism and for retirement, but it's not really a high tech hub. Um, so getting out into that community, there's, it's a pretty small circle. And I, I think this is just generally for people looking for new work and, and being um, thoughtful about where they want to go. Um, but it also, you, you kind of had to work the, the system to, to be there when the opportunity presented itself. So when I kind of settled in Hawaii, I really sought out getting out into the community, working with whether blue startups and doing mentoring. I was advising on a couple of blockchain projects from my friends who started up these, these projects. And, you know, I taught myself what blockchain was, and I'm not an expert on it, but taught enough and then created a presentation to, to explain it to other people at, at blue startups. So, so tell us more about this role. You know, it, it has, uh, you know, a, a similar title. It sounds like the things you've done, where it could feel ambiguous, but, um, but you know, we we know you, and you're not you're not ambiguous. So maybe talk about what you want to accomplish here, and um, you know, trying to you know bring some of these 
really interesting ideas and perspectives from your background into um, into this environment. Yeah, so you are right. All the banks are really antiquated in their technology. Uh, most banks under the you know below the regional size banks, below the Wells Fargo's and Chases, tend to outsource their technology through a through software vendors, and then they customize. So vendor selection, choosing the best players, um, having a pretty clear vision of of where we want to go. Obviously, everyone knows it's it's digital. Mobile first is not even that exciting as a concept, but in the banking world, it is. So we need to just get up to par um, on digital so that our customers don't all run away. And then it gives us the opportunity to start rolling out some new products and features. Um, I think the we, we thoughtfully chose vendors that have um, data and digital platforms that have APIs. So we're not locked in on the choice of that particular vendor. We can start looking at um, best of breed fintechs. So I'll give an example. My, my friend just joined SoFi. They, mm-hmm. they have zero interest in working with banks. They're, they're going direct. But let's just pretend I said to him and said, hey, you know, what if we partnered out here in Hawaii and we could offer uh, refinanced loans, student loans to University of Hawaii alumni? Would that be something we could co-brand on? And, and you know, SoFi is probably like, you know what? We have no plans to go to Hawaii anytime soon. So knock yourself out. If, if you do something, <laughs> I get something. If you don't, nothing, it doesn't hurt me, right? Mm-hmm. And then I get to say, look, I'm partnering with SoFi, super cool product. And they have a super cool, you know, streamlined process. What the, the magic that requires all of this is the API so I can integrate them into my platform. Sure. Now, um, Hawaii has a, maybe a little bit different uh, population demographic than, than a lot of the mainland. You know, it's, uh, it's an older population. Um, maybe it's a little bit different in terms of like adoption, you know, of, of new things. And how do you think about that? You know, when you're when you're looking at your your product strategy and, and what's next, but trying to you know match it with your user base. I would say the executives at all the banks are a little bit complacent because of that demographic you described. They think that their customers are loyal, and so they're kind of happy with their existing customer base. However, I'm trying to be that person to say, hey, our platform is burning, and we have to change. This is not a problem tomorrow. This is a, a Kodak moment now, right? You know, mm. the, the digital camera has been invented, and you know, the film is dying. So we're in a similar state here. Um, the user experience that people are expecting is not defined by the other banks. It's defined by the fintechs and the retailers, right? So my experience on uh, my Amazon app influences my expectation of my mobile app. So I'm trying to light that fire internally, let people know that this is not sustainable and things shift way faster than you expect. So we need to uh, act with this, this sense of urgency that, you know, we must change with this changing tide, the digital attack. Sure. Now, now talk to us about um, the opportunity for talent here. You know, there's, there's certainly a lot of really, um, really interesting people and, and, and great backgrounds, but Hawaii is also a small place and it's not, 
you know, it doesn't have the, you know, tens of thousands of engineers like you'd see in China or, or Silicon Valley. How do you reconcile that and your overall vision and strategy with, with your talent capabilities? Yeah, um, like I said, mostly we're not doing a whole lot of core development. So it's, it's not like my PayPal world where, you know, we needed to hire the best engineers to create a new product. Most of our work is customization and configuration and in the future, maybe some API development. Um, I think we can find them. I think it's more the mindset. It's actually the bigger issue than the, the skill set. It's, mm. you know, the, the kind of complacency, the, you know, the island time, all that stuff is, is the bigger risk. The, the ability to ask questions, to see around the corner, to, to see how other banks or industries have worked outside of how things worked in Hawaii. So to be honest, um, you know, for certain high skill roles, kind of like a data scientist, for example, you know, I might be looking more for a, a someone who left the islands and, and may be looking to return. Mm. And, and that was similar to my, my hiring strategy when I was in China. Like, if I want a sales guy, I hired a local sales guy because they needed to talk to the clients the best or even marketing. But if I wanted to do um, digital marketing in payments, nobody had that experience in China. So right. I, I had to go look in the United States to see, you know, they call them sea turtles, someone who, want, who left China and was looking to return to China. So similarly here, um, hoping I can find that lucky strike of someone, you know, like, like myself, right? Or, or you who sure. came here for different reasons, but um, is looking for interesting work on the island. Sure, sure. Well, this is really exciting. Um, you know, so Alan, like we talked about before, um, you know, you've been um, instrumental to a lot of startups and the community here. And, you know, I, I know how much uh, you like to add value and advise and for those uh, who aren't lucky enough to meet you in person, you know, we've got uh, fintech entrepreneurs all over uh, the Americas and Asia. What, what kind of advice would you have for someone maybe earlier stage, um, you know, just getting started on their, their product or platform? You know, this is general advice that I, I, I give to tons of people and very few people actually execute. <laughs> um, <laughs> so this is not really for technology per se, it's, it's for life. It's understand what your values are. They're different for everyone. So what's important for you and work backwards and say, what, what kind of job or life or work do I want to do that deliver these values? Here's the tricky part that even that kind of people talk about, but you know, you do this in, in jobs, you write your vision statements, you write your mission statements, you write your goals, but we don't really often do that in our life. So I would say, you know, Think about three years from now, and why I like three years is one year is kind of, it's you're too much locked into today's world, and five years out, you're, anything could happen. But three years is kind of right on the edge. It's like right on the edge of your peripheral vision in, in, in your mind. And, and literally imagine your life that you want it to be and write it down. Here, that's the biggest tip. You must write it down. And I did a meditation class in Singapore. I thought, one of the greatest mottos there was, you are the author of your life story. Mm. I love that motto. So like just imagine you were going to create a movie of, you know, your life three years from now. Someone else was going to come in. Steven Spielberg was going to create a movie because he's like, oh, my God, your life was incredible. We're going to make a movie of it. What would that script say? And so yeah. you start with three years out. You write that down. 
And then you back it up a year and you say, at year two, you say, oh my God, I can't believe, you know, I got to this amazing thing. I'm doing my tech job, banker on the beach in Hawaii. That was my three-year vision. <laughs> How did I get there? Well, year two, I landed on Hawaii and I started uh, working with the community. And then, you know, so you, you kind of describe it and then it gives you a roadmap. And, and as you know, this, this it, it doesn't actually happen that way. If it did, it would be a little weird. <laughs> but what it does is it opens your mind up to opportunities that you would not normally see. Sure. Very good advice. Very good advice. Um, and I also wanted to get your perspective, Alan, on um, just like some big picture, you know, macro trends that, you know, we should be thinking about. Um, you know, maybe look at, you know, you've, you spent a lot of your, your career in, in banking and payments and so forth. What do you think is next? What's around the corner? Well, I think everyone goes down the trend lines. It's obviously everything gets more and more invisible. So I'm not saying anything new. You, you can read any fintech articles. Like eventually payments is a non-issue. You're not even thinking about it. So in Uber, you don't think about payments. Then that's the brilliance of it all. Payments is just included in the experience. Um, so if you kind of generalize that to everything, it's the experience that matters versus the tech. So I think technologists tend to focus on the tech. It's really... You know, I love the Airbnb story. The, the founder said, you know, back it up. I'm trying to create a seven-star experience. What's my customer journey? The customer journey starts before the user even touches the Airbnb app. It starts from the day they start thinking about traveling. And it ends with not when they check out of the Airbnb apartment. It ends when they go home and they tell everyone what a great experience they had. You know, so it's the overall experience. Technology is just enabling all that stuff. You know, I'm not, I don't recommend throwing, you know, uh, 100% behind it. But if you're 25 years old right now and you're a technologist, you should be downloading the SDKs and playing with it and, and getting smart on it. Sure. Very good advice. Well, Alan, um, I, I know you're a busy guy. You're leading innovation, so we don't want to keep you for, for much longer. But um, this has been fantastic. Uh, so thank you again for, for making time. Uh, we really appreciate it. Well, Brian, thanks a lot for inviting me. I, my LinkedIn's out there, so feel free to ping me out there, and, and best of luck with this. And, and Alan, what's the best way for people to find out about, um, about Central Pacific Bank and, and what you guys are doing over there? I think we'll get our website revamped by middle to end of the year. Go on to my LinkedIn, Alan Tien, and um, you can click through from there. Perfect. Thank you for listening to the FinTech Podcast, sponsored by True North. You can find True North at www.truenorth.co.